This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Breaking Beauty, the podcast all about the breakthrough people, products, and moments in beauty. We're your hosts, Jill Dunn and Carleen Higgins. Hey, beauty friends. Welcome back to our show, Breaking Beauty Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Jill Dunn, and right alongside me virtually is Carleen Higgins. Hey, Carlene. Hi, guys. Hey, Jill. So today we're back with a glow down episode. And quite honestly, it's a topic that we've been wanting to talk about for a long time, a lot to unpack today. But you know, the timing wasn't right. The world turned upside down. Here we are. We're excited to dive into clean beauty in the age of misinformation. Today, our guest is cosmetic chemist and formulator, Jen Novakovich, who has a blog, YouTube and podcast called The Eco Well. And actually in September, we're going to be on her show. So look out for that. The Eco Well is a science communication platform and their mission is to bring more science into the conversation of sustainability in personal care, making accurate information more accessible to everyone. And I would say that Jen is just really one in a growing movement of scientists who are speaking up a lot on social media against what they see as a misinformation epidemic driven by the wellness industry and quote unquote clean beauty industry. Well, they're definitely growing louder, certainly on social media. You know, you wouldn't have found a cosmetic chemist probably five years ago on Instagram. And now we have Dr. Michelle Wong from Lab Muffin. I think she has like almost 180,000 followers. Stephen Ko from Kind of Stephen. He is amazing at, you know, myth busting. Erica Douglas from Sister Scientists. And for us as journalists, I think it's so interesting to have watched this movement. You know, in the early days, There was so much excitement and attention around green beauty. And the concept then was, well, how organic is your formula? You know, are there any chemical? Is it 97%? Is it 83%? And the idea being that there should be no chemicals in there at all. And then we started to see the clean beauty movement. You know, you think about Drunk Elephant in more recent years, and it was like, well, some chemicals are fine. They're good. Let's not, you know, paint all chemicals with the same brush. We're just going to select the ones we think are not harmful and then pair them with botanical ingredients that we really like and just leave out these suspicious six or whatever. And this is where the whole free from, you know, barrage of products really came from. And now what we're seeing is this pushback from the scientific community saying, wait a second, suspicious sex, none of those ingredients are even harmful at all. None of them is really being penetrated into your skin, into the bloodstream. You guys are talking shit and it needs to stop, right? 
And I think it's, there's been a lot of fear mongering happening in the quote unquote clean beauty industry. And I think that's what the scientists and certainly mm-hmm. people like Carolyn Hirons have gotten their arms up about because mm-hmm. they're just like, you guys are lying to people to sell products and we're sick of it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, without question, the demand is there, Carlene. Like it's people want cleaner formulas. They're seeking them out. And I can't say I blame them if they're eating like kale smoothies that are organic every single day. And they're, you know, just really trying to do the 360 of a holistic, healthy lifestyle. That's part and parcel of it. That's how they see Mm -hmm. it. And, you know, the industry is following suit like Credo Beauty, the all natural retailer. They just inked a deal with Ulta Beauty and they're going to be in more than a hundred Ulta stores and like having floor retail space in a hundred Ulta stores coming this fall. So without question, people want to shop that way. Well, even you sent me an article this morning from Beauty Matter and they were citing NPD Group. So they're kind of the trend watching agency for our industry. And they had said that the category of prestige clean beauty is up 11% this year, despite the fact that beauty as a whole declined by 14 Mm percent. So that just shows you really where most of the growth is and what people want. And I think all of that being said, you know, for us here at Breaking Beauty, we're all about choice, right? We're not going to say, well, clean beauty is bad. So we're never going to talk about clean beauty. We're not going to say that conventional beauty products are bad either. What we do believe in is making informed decisions. And that's why we have the best experts that we can find. We love what they're saying. We are learning along with you. And I think we have a good example of one of those experts today. Absolutely. So Jen really is giving us some thought starters and tools when it comes to critical thinking around products. And we're going to get to the bottom of why the love affair for parabens continues within the scientific community, especially with cosmetic formulators, and how much, if any, topical product is really being absorbed into your skin, as a lot of naysayers say, or even into the bloodstream. And finally, she also talks about so many things, but she also talks about claims like medical grade on a label. Does that mean anything? So here she is, Jen from the Eco Well. And now a quick break to hear about one of our show partners, Sakara. In today's intro, we were just chatting all about how more and more people want to feel their best and are just being more mindful about what they put on their skin, what they drink, and of course, what they eat. Well, Sakara is one of the easiest ways to eat healthy, nutritious meals, and it's delivered fresh, straight to your door anywhere in the U.S. Sakara is a plant-based nutrition company that is a savior for people who want to eat healthy meals but never seem to find the time to shop for ingredients or prepare it. Does that sound familiar? I mean, that is definitely me. Sakara features organic, ready-to-eat meals that are designed to boost your energy, improve digestion, and get your skin glowing from the inside out. Personally, I really like that they're constantly updating their menus so you don't get bored. Right now, I really want to try the new Dreamsicle Oats featuring turmeric, honey, and vanilla bean oats paired with an orange blossom-infused 
almond milk. Sounds so good. Along with delicious meals, Saqqara also has daily wellness essentials like supplements and herbal teas to help support your nutrition. To boost results, try the best-selling Metabolism Super Powder, an all-natural remedy for bloating, weight gain, and fatigue. So right now, Saqqara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to saqqara.com slash beauty or enter code beauty at checkout. That's Sakara S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash beauty to get 20% off your order. And one more time, that's sakara.com slash beauty. We'll link to that offer in our show notes and on our blog. And now back to today's podcast. Hey girl, hey, welcome to Taste of Taylor, my weekly podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Strecker. You might know me from Sirius XM Radio. I mean, I was there for like 12 years after all, but then Howard Stern allegedly got jealous of me, so I had to leave. I was actually able to pull myself up by the bootstraps and start my own podcast, Taste of Taylor, which is now officially with Dear Media. I'm so excited to say that. Ha! So I promise you in this podcast, you're going to either learn about something, you're going to be inspired by someone that's like always coming from a perspective of like humor, then this is the place for you. I hope you enjoy this little snack. So we're really starting to see this awakening of cosmetic scientists within the scientific community, you know, really standing up and speaking out against the wellness industry, as you said, and clean beauty marketing on social media and on YouTube. So what are your thoughts about this movement as part of the movement that's really bubbling up right now? I think it's great. I think this is one of the positives that is coming from the clean and wellness space or quote unquote green space. It is frustrating scientists. And we're now starting to show up in force on social media. And it's also fostering collaboration, communication on all Mm -hmm. fronts. It's fostering creativity. We're now starting to think, I know at least I am, how can we reach better consumers? And that's, for example, influencing the influencers and bringing them on our team so that we can make this information more accessible. So that's something Mm -hmm. I think is really interesting and a positive that is coming from the misinformation that is kind of overwhelming in the industry. Right. And not just in our industry, it's kind of overwhelming everywhere. Right. And do you believe the word clean should be removed from the beauty lexicon or is there use for that language? I would love for it to be removed. Yeah. It perpetuates so much undue fear. It puts a lot of blame on consumers. It reinforces the idea that if something bad happens in someone's life, it's because of the products that they were purchasing. They were purchasing dirty products and then they eventually got cancer. It's your fault because you bought the wrong products. That's toxic, I personally think, and really unhealthy. It gives people a lot of anxiety. And a lot of the times, the anxiety is undue because the products are demonstrably safe. They're employing fear-mongering to capture that idea from consumers. Like we want to buy the best things for our family. We want to buy things that aren't going to damage the environment. These are things that we're all with good cause concerned about. Right. And like, I would love for it to be removed because ultimately the movement from what I've seen at least is underpinned by pseudoscience. And how can we move forward to do better if we're not actually informing our decisions 
by actual scientific evidence. Mm -hmm. Your whole subject matter is all about scientific communication. So what about the words chemicals when you hear about chemical free and that sort of thing in beauty? Why is it so loaded? Well, it is waving it on a flag that they don't have that science literacy that I think we learned in high school, maybe even grade school, that things are made up of chemicals. Chemicals are the building blocks of life. And so it's Mm -hmm. perpetuating science illiteracy and misinformation because everything made up of matter are made up of chemicals. Right. So when we're thinking about the space of wellness, like multi-billion dollar industry now, and I think, again, this movement that's happening with scientists where they're like, hey, guys, let's attack some of this misinformation going on. Do you think that there is still any room for anecdotal evidence in your mind, like small batch brands that are coming out? They're like, this whole line is based on aloe. My grandmother used to use it on my wounds or, you know, real women uh, writing reviews online or beauty journalists who have tried hundreds of products just being like, I love this product. Like, is there any room for that anecdotal evidence? Because that's the only thing is sometimes I'm like, you know, does that mean we should only listen to scientists or what's your take on that? No, I mean, anecdotal evidence has its place. And Michelle from Lab Muffin Beauty Science wrote a great blog, but she has it as an Instagram post. I think she also has a video on this, but I mean, you can't be so scientific about this stuff because A, there's not that much science to substantiate every single thing in life, including in cosmetic products. Mm -hmm. Everybody's different. So if you like a product, which you're going to like out of your anecdotal experience, then you should use the product that you like. Mm -hmm. Reviews, feedback from customers to brands. As I'm formulating, I receive anecdotal experience through uh, reviews from my clients to make the product. So it's Mm -hmm. important. It's just not something when we're making statements about, for example, this ingredient will interact with the aquaporins in your skin cells to enhance cellular hydration. Well, that's a claim that should be substantiated with scientific evidence. This ingredient is going to help, or this product, should I say, is going to help manage eczema or acne. Well, when you're putting those claims on the label, probably that's where scientific evidence should come in. And that's why these products are generally regulated as drugs and not cosmetics. But certainly anecdotal evidence does have a place because that's what informs whether like we like something and we don't. And just because this one product has so much evidence and like how much evidence can you really have for a product? But just because it has so much evidence shouldn't like it doesn't mean that everyone out there is going to like it and it's like, like it. every totally. everyone's different. <laughs> right. You recently held the virtual conference called Misinformation How to Not Be a Part of the Problem. And so what are a couple of the biggest practical takeaways that we can use, whether you're an influencer or a beauty editor like us, or even someone who's commenting on social media? You know, I think the biggest take-home message of that panel, and it keeps coming up, is that collaboration is extremely important. And we need to recognize the limits of our knowledge and recognize where other people may have expertise. Of course, you still have to be critical of them. But collaboration is ultimately what's going to make it possible to overcome the challenge of misinformation. 
scientists aren't going to be able to do it by themselves because generally, with a few exceptions, we're not great at connecting with consumers in the way that influencers do. That's an art. That's a skill. Mm-hmm. And dermatologists need to also connect with cosmetic chemists when they're making right. information. There's there is false information being perpetuated by both sides because they don't recognize the limits of their knowledge. And so when you see these black and white statements of, for example, cosmetic products aren't going to do anything for you. Retinol is a waste of money. Fragrance is totally bad for everyone. Well, it's a little bit more complicated. And had they talked with a cosmetic chemist, they could have learned about complexity, learned about the regulations and so on and so forth. But the influencers, I really truly believe are going to be that key to communicating to consumers so that we're going to actually be able to change the direction that we're going in the industry because consumers demand that change. Influencers ultimately have the ear of the consumer. So it's going to take a group effort if we're going to totally, if we're going to get anywhere, we need to (laughs) remove ourselves from our silos and start working together. Now, I want to get to really the heart of what I think is what a lot of scientists are kind of pushing back on right now, and that is the demonizing of certain ingredients and exactly how much gets absorbed into the bloodstream. So tell us is, you know, you often hear 60%. Why don't you comment on that? Just think about this for a little bit. First, it's important to think about like, where is it absorbing? Is it absorbing it into the skin or is it absorbing into the blood? But say we're Mm -hmm. talking about the blood and 60% Mm -hmm. actually absorbed and you jumped in a pool, what would that mean for you? <laughs> you you're not like yeah. a sponge. <laughs> like right. You're not going to just like explode because you've jumped in a pool. If that was the case, this, the world would be a very scary place. Mm-hmm. So in reality, your skin is quite good at keeping things out. And from a formulation perspective, it's a formulation challenge even to get ingredients because you, you do want to deliver ingredients into the skin. Mm -hmm. So even to deliver them, even to pass the stratum corneum to a little bit deeper in the epidermis, the top layer of the skin, that is a formulation challenge because it has to go through the skin cells. And then, uh, it has to, after that, get to the dermis where there's like immune cells that it'll have to interact with. And comparatively speaking from an ingredient, like that's a comparatively huge distance and huge challenge to make it into your blood. Now, certain ingredients do have a bit of absorption, but those Mm -hmm. ingredients, because of that, if they start, if you see it in the blood, then regulation step in to demand a higher level of safety substantiation. So these things are accounted for in regulations. You can think of with parabens, uh, because you can see parabens in like your urine, but seeing something in urine isn't necessarily a bad thing. And often it's a good thing because it implies that it's readily excreted. But when, when that happens, it's something that then there will be toxicological assessments to ensure that it's actually going to be safe at the levels used in cosmetics. But it's not 60%. It's like a very, very, very tiny I can't say which percentage because it all depends on the formula and it all depends on the barrier of uh, the person, but a very tiny amount may penetrate, but not that much. And if it does penetrate, it's going to be accounted for within regulation. So you can feel rest assured that your product will be safe if you're buying from a reputable brand. 
And so you mentioned parabens. I mean, that's enemy number one in, you know, the whole clean beauty community. So are they as harmful as everyone is made to believe? The parabens that are approved for cosmetics used in cosmetic products within regulatory limits are demonstrably safe, and they may actually be our best option. Mm -hmm. Uh, For example, with skin tolerability, it is the least allergenic preservative class that I know of, at least, with the most amount of safety substantiation. So the fear really started from a study that was published, you may be familiar, in 2004, Mm -hmm. Uh, the Darber study, she only looked at 20 individuals, only individuals who had breast cancer, and they found that there were parabens in breast cancer tissue. Mm -hmm. And so that was really all that was found in that study. And so it was a call for future research. But if there was like a take-home of breast cancer, it would be correlative. So correlation does not equal causation. So the media communicated that to the public in a way that wasn't really aligned with what happened with that study. So it was just a preliminary study, but it did prompt a lot of research. So since then, there have been probably over a thousand studies at this point. And Mm -hmm. time and time again, studies have demonstrated safety. There hasn't been a study to demonstrate that parabens as used, and it has been rigorously tested are going to actually be endocrine disruptors or estrogenic as used in cosmetics. Even with all the products being conservative that we use every day, it's not something that we really have to worry about. There's a lot to this conversation and I always am challenged by this. Well, why don't we just switch to something else? You probably saw my post and I got a lot of flack from it that saying that paraben-free isn't the cautious approach because it's not. Parabens mm-hmm. are the m- most rigorously tested ingredient category, full stop, used in cosmetics. Right. And Compare so that why- to sodium benzoate, potassium sorbate, benzyl alcohol, phenoxyethanol, methyl isothiazolinone, whatever preservative system that you're going to use, there is not as much data to support safety. It's harsher on the skin. So preservatives by function will be potentially irritating and potentially sensitizing. So you always want to reduce the amount of preservative that you're putting in the formula so that it's Mm -hmm. going to be skin safe. So that's something if a preservative system such as quote unquote natural, they're all nature identical, but that's besides the point. (laughs) They are less efficacious. So they have to be used at higher percentages. They have potentially more challenges with skin tolerability. So that kind of compounds it, contrast that you can use parabens at a very low percentage. They have mm-hmm. very good skin tolerability. They won the 2018 non-allergen of the award, and that hasn't been the only time they've won that award by the American Dermatitis Society. In what world is the alternative, the more cautious choice? It's just, it's right. the ignorant choice. And I'm not saying that in a bad way, but we just have <laughs> less data, less substantiation. And to me, yeah, that right. would be a cause for concern and a want for demanding more research. Poor parabens. They got canceled. They were a victim of cancel culture. Yeah, and <laughs> before that even happened. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because even with every single thing you're saying, and I hear every single thing you're saying, and I agree with you, there's people will still know to look for it and be like, that's bad for me. You know, it's like the damage is done. So it's hard. It'll take a large effort from industry to correct Mm -hmm. some of the misinformation that ultimately Mm -hmm. it started with marketing. So we have really Mm -hmm. shot ourselves in the foot, but also now it's being spread further by quote unquote NGOs that are 
apparently doing good, but perpetuating a lot of misinformation. And I'm thinking particularly of the EWG. Yeah, totally. So just to quickly touch on the toxic beauty documentary, because that really made waves within the beauty industry. And I know like Vogue ran a headline that said, is skincare the new cigarettes? And I was just like, it seemed pretty compelling to the layperson. So their main idea there was that talc causes ovarian cancer. And this is very confusing to consumers. There's this idea that class action lawsuits imply guilt, but that's not necessarily the case. So there was actually a study, which will be the greatest study probably ever published on the topic for talc and its relation to ovarian cancer published in JAMA last year. I forget the exact number of participants, but it was somewhere along the line of like, 200,000 across populations, and they did not see a link from ovarian cancer and talc usage. Talking with a number of MDs about this, there's not really like a physiological way for in an intact ovary for it to cause the micro damage that can lead to ovarian cancer. And also the body of evidence does not support that claim. But when Mm -hmm. all that is in the media, And then someone gets ovarian cancer and then they're asked to recall the products that they've used. They're probably going to be like, oh yeah, maybe I use baby powder. Maybe I use it more to confirm some of those biases. Recall bias is a thing and can be influenced by what is in the media. So, so of course for that trial for Johnson and Johnson, they didn't actually feature scientists. They didn't want to feature scientists from Johnson and Johnson. To me, that's an error. If you have a good lawyer, regardless if you're right or wrong, especially if the public is outraged as they are and outrage doesn't always link to evidence as you see so many times, you're probably going to win the case. And that's what happened. And now that's not speaking to some of the asbestos issues, but that is not related to ovarian cancer. That would be related to inhalation risks. And that is also a confused topic. But just Mm -hmm. specifically to the ovarian cancer, there was not actually in the body of evidence did not support that link. It was anecdotes. And we know that when we're talking about things like this, that's where we should be relying on the scientific evidence. And of course, people's experience matter. And I don't want to diminish the experiences of these women that have ovarian cancer. That's horrible. But it's important to recognize that That's not what the body of evidence is showing us. And so people Mm -hmm. took it as this big win when Johnson & Johnson a few months ago made the announcement that, well, we're pulling out of North America with our health-based baby powder. I was like, that is them admitting that they're wrong. No, that's a business move. (laughs) It's much easier to just take it out and cut their losses because reality, baby powder for Johnson & Johnson's portfolio is a very minor product a very minor player for their end sales year over year. Right. So getting back to the, you know, the paraben question, why are certain ingredients vilified like this? Well, I think it really stems back to marketing. Uh, I had an interesting conversation with uh, Valerie George from Beauty Brains. We were talking about how these free from claims really got started. And it was really from SLS first, from a brand that put out marketing messages, and then it implied that SLS was better and their product was not stripping. And that kind of prompted the free from claims. Mm -hmm. 
It's because right. it sells. It initially there was that marketing strategy. It's a way for brands to differentiate themselves. Like in reality, products haven't changed that much. Technology hasn't changed that much. Shampoos are still pretty much the same as shampoos were in the 70s. We're still using the same ingredients. If you look at ingredient lists from then till now, we're still relying on, for example, SLS because it's a mm -hmm. very effective surfactant. Okay, maybe we're using a different anionic surfactant, but still that basic anionic surfactant technology is incorporated into the formulas. And so with that, with the conglomerates that are in the industry that have a huge marketing budget and they can reduce their costs because they can optimize their whole supply chain and getting it to consumers. Well, it's really hard for brands to differentiate themselves, to reach consumers, to cut through the noise. And so an easy way to do that is to differentiate through fear mongering. And we know that fear is a very effective, like we're seeing it because mm -hmm. people respond to like, oh, well, I don't want to harm my family. So when you have this message that will, all the other products on the market, probably because they imply it when they say free from have right. this ingredient and we don't. So use mm -hmm. our product because all the other products are going to harm you. That's the messaging yeah. that is now being put out to to consumers and, and mm -hmm. has been, and it wasn't initially, it's going to harm you in that way. It was initially, it's going to harm your hair and make it like dry and stuff. Not mm -hmm. that you can't account for that in good formulating decisions, but ultimately it's coming back to marketing. Right. Mm -hmm. So in your view, is there any ingredient that you would just not touch as a formulator that is a complete no-no from a safety perspective? I would say that like any ingredient can be harsh depending on the level that it's used at. Maybe that's an over-exaggeration in cosmetics because like water, but ingredients, certain ingredient classes specifically, maybe I'll say can be harsh when used inappropriately. And so that's where formulating comes in. So you can account for some of these challenges. There are challenges with certain ingredients, but you can account for it, for example, with MIT using it in wash-off products. Now that's not a preservative system that I particularly like to use, but you can make the product perfectly fine. Some people do have allergies or skin sensitization to MIT, but that challenge is mitigated from wash off products. So it's hard to make a blanket statement that okay. an ingredient will be good or bad because it all just depends. And that's not an answer that consumers like to hear. But it's right. complex and it depends. And it depends. It yeah. Depends on so, how the ingredient is actually used in the formula and like the steps mm -hmm. of the So the, there aren't any, you know, as a formulator, there aren't any common ingredients out there that you're just like, I'm not ordering that in. I don't use that in any of my formulations. I mean, like, so I always recommend my clients not use that much fragrance in facial care, but it's perfectly fine in other areas. Uh, mm -hmm. you can account for the irritancy and sensitization issues there. I don't mm -hmm. particularly like essential oils, but that's a blanket statement because it's not always going like tea tree essential oil, for example, has some growing clinical data to support its use in cosmetics. Mm -hmm. Although it does have some issues with the irritation and sensitivity and sustainability. People don't often think about the sustainability challenges for sourcing uh, right. plant-based materials. Mm -hmm. It's hard to make that blanket statement though, but that's mm -hmm. uh, an ingredient category that I don't like to use that often. I will use it every once in a while, but they also have an added challenge of oxidization in formula. So 
But it, again, it's hard to make that blanket statement that don't use essential oils. But from my preference, I personally prefer formulated. Now, we often hear from the scientific community when we are looking at any specific ingredient, there is no evidence, you know, that kind of a thing. And I think for some sort of clean beauty proponents, if you will, that you know, there's this idea that, well, maybe it's just presumed innocent until proven guilty. So I don't want to take that chance. Now, how on it is the FDA and Health Canada in your mind? Because I have heard before that there's like a long list of ingredients and products that Health Canada is testing and it takes a long time to get through it. Or do you just have faith that they're doing their job? No, no, no. There are challenges with every regulatory body, including the EU. People look to the EU as the gold standard, but they have their own issues with regulating products in their market, depending on the country, especially. And it depends on who is in office. If we have Donald Trump in office, then maybe the FDA won't have so much power to actually act because their team is cut down. It's hard in the market, especially in the United States, because there's so many small brands and there are small brands that are falling through the cracks. Predominantly, though, they are the small brands. And like, I'm not saying don't use products from small brands, but just be aware that sometimes they don't have the same kind of scientific and regulatory and toxicology teams that some of the larger players would have. The critical eyes are on the larger players. Mm -hmm. They have deep pockets. There's like a cottage country of lawyers in the United States, very litigious country. And they go like if there's something wrong with the product, even if there's nothing wrong with it, as you see so often, if there's something wrong, they will get sued. And, that, right. and it'll be very public. And then there will be a loss of consumer trust. You don't want that to happen to your brand. You want to mm-hmm. do everything that you can to make sure that your products are safe. So ultimately, wherever you are, while the path to regulate is different, the end is kind of the same throughout these three markets in that it is illegal to sell unsafe products. And so you have to substantiate the safety and look at the evidence to ensure that the ingredients that you're incorporating into the formulas are going to be safe. And Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of research and development that goes into products to ensure that the products are safe, but it's really Mm -hmm. hard for consumers when they don't see that same kind of prescriptive structure as the EU has to see like, oh, well, products in the USA are less safe. Well, it depends. Certainly there are challenges though with small brands, but it's important to recognize that large brands are also selling in the EU. And so they will be conforming to those regulations, but also litigation is actually pretty effective at uh, regulating, uh, I guess, keeping people Mm -hmm. in check, should I say. The FDA does, I mean, they could have more power, but I'd say, uh, I mean, every regulatory body could improve. And yes, like Health Canada, if you report to Health Canada, sometimes they can take a really long time to get back to you. There are these same problems in every market. Right, right. So I want to ask you about claims. One of the biggest questions we get from our listeners is about, you'll see things on the label like medical grade or clinical grade. Does it mean anything? No, it's marketing. So there are three categories by regulation of cosmetic products, at least in North America, EU and Canada. We have NPN products in Canada, but they are generally cosmetic products, 
which are limited by what they do. They can't actually non-transiently impact the structure of your skin. They can't actually have curative properties that will actually physiologically change the skin. Mm -hmm. So those are your cosmetic products. They are beautifying. And I mean, there's a lot of good that comes with it. I'm not going to say that they're not worth your money that you uh, hear some dermatologists say, because there's a lot of benefit to keeping water in your skin, washing grime away that you would do with cosmetic product. Then you have your OTC. So these are regulated as drugs, but you don't require a pharmacist to purchase the product. So in North America, depending in Canada, because they can also be NPN, these are your, for example, salicylic acid, acne products that you get your sunscreens. Those are regulated as uh, drugs or NPN if they are mineral or inorganic. Right. Depending on the levels that certain ingredients are used, they would be like, for example, retinol. Uh, So some of these ingredients that it can actually... Well, sunscreen is kind of a weird one because in the EU, they aren't regulated as drugs and are regulated as cosmetics. But with that exception, these products are products that can actually change your skin physiology and they have to have more substantiation. And then you have your prescription drug products. And so these are the products that require even more substantiation and rigor for manufacture And they have to be prescribed through a physician or a pharmacist. So those are the three categories. Medical grade isn't like some additional category. Those (laughs) fall into cosmetics. Unless they have a DIN number or NPN number, those are cosmetics. And like I, it's just a reality. I was curious with organic ingredients, like let's say we're talking about green tea or kakadu plum, like anything. Do they have more antioxidants in them than refined or processed versions of that same ingredient. It kind of comes back to like food. There's this assumption that organic food is healthier. Well, the body of evidence does not support that. And even like there are some studies that show that you can get more nutrition into foods via genetic engineering, but Mm -hmm. it all really is complex. We don't have so much evidence, but conventional food seem at least with the evidence that we have, as healthy, at least as organic options. So I would say that same kind of logic comes through with the ingredients and cosmetics. But ultimately, if you want to find out specific antioxidants, how much is in an ingredient, you have to actually go and test it. You can't just assume that because it's super organic, it's going to have more. Personally, though, when you're talking about like natural ingredients, well, they typically don't have the same kind of efficacy as some of these man-made ingredients where you can be very direct with the mm-hmm. the actives that you want so you can actually get something done. Again, you're limited by what you can get with a cosmetic product. Right. Okay. I have one last question and it's a bit of a double hitter. What's the next big thing in terms of ingredients that we may not have heard of yet? Or you can choose on the flip side, is there a fad ingredient that scientifically you're just like, that's bunk. The most trendy ingredient that doesn't have that much sound science, I would say right now, probably CBD (laughs) is very popular, but we don't even know how to effectively stabilize it in a formulation. It's very prone to oxidation. (laughs) So like, I don't know how people are stabilizing it effectively through the shelf Mm -hmm. life, especially when they're, they're sold in not an airless pump container in a clear glass product. And then on top of that, there's not actually that much. There's a little bit of evidence, but not that much Mm -hmm. evidence to substantiate 
substantiated in products, but also in Canada, we're very limited by our regulations. So probably more applicable to uh, United States individuals, but that would be the one that I would say has the most hype, not so much data, including in actual formulating. We don't yet know the best way to formulate with it. Okay. Great. Thank you. Good to know. Great. Well, thank you so much. And everybody can find Jen at the Eco Well. Lots of great tips on her podcast as well as her Instagram. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. You can find details on every product mentioned in today's episode, along with our exclusive promo codes on our blog at breakingbeautypodcast.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. Every episode will be delivered directly to your inbox so you won't miss a single thing. And get social with us. Let us know what you think of the episode. You can follow us on Instagram at breakingbeautypodcast. And did you know we also have a private Facebook group? Just search Breaking Beauty Podcast chat room. You can even leave us a voicemail at any time with questions or feedback at 1-844-227-0302. And don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast fix. Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts, where you can show us some love by writing a review. See you next Wednesday. I'm